have my trust in no book. And good thing I have my dear old thing. Earlier this week on The Overlook, we looked at the details and local costs of Asheville's hotel boom. Yesterday was a deep dive into the state of the city's homelessness. Today, we close the circle by dropping into a discussion about Asheville's challenges with affordable housing. Graduated from UNCA, I've got three degrees, about to finish my master's. And so when I found out I couldn't find a home, you know, it's kind of, it's discouraged me from buying. So I haven't even looked on the market. Even working the job that I work, I can't afford a home here. I'm Matt Pikin. Today on The Overlook, I bring you to the February meeting of the Goodwill Industries Business Advisory Council. These meetings are set up as lunch and learns, and I brought my recorder. I'm only giving you the Q&A segment of the meeting, but I came back with valuable insights I thought everyone in Asheville should hear. Panelists are Robin Cape of EXP Realty, Andy Barnett, the Executive Director of Asheville Area Habitat for Humanity, and Anna Zuyevskaya, Executive Director of Asheville Buncombe Community Land Trust. We begin here with Robin Cape addressing a question about the city's ability to curb institutional investors from inflating the selling and asking prices of local homes. North Carolina is a Dillon's rural state. And what that means is that the state legislature controls everything that a community does. And Asheville, if we tried to say we can't have institutional investors in town, Do you imagine the state of North Carolina and the legislators we have there now would back us? No. We are really tied with how we can control the boundaries of our community. Asheville can't even extend the boundaries where they could have benefits. Now, we have put restrictions on short-term rentals. So far, we've been allowed to do that. And I say we, the royal we, right, because it is our community. So far, we've been allowed to do that because we see how that takes housing stock out of the hands of people who live and work here. That's being challenged all up and down. Airbnb is spending so much money to challenge us on that on the state level. Now, the one thing to recognize also is that some institutional investors are our real partners in building. They're the ones coming in and building these apartments. And as much as many of us don't really want to see these apartment buildings come in, they are serving a huge role to have places for people to live. But that's the limits as I can see it. I just wanted to piggyback off of that because I had thought of that like realistically as far as do we need more low income housing or do we need more rental properties? It comes down to the banks, right? As far as whether they're going to provide someone with the capital, the loan to get into a house it depends on your income, it depends on a lot of things, whereas rental properties don't, you don't have to have as much of that figured out. You would think so, but if you talk to anybody who's looking to rent lately, and you look at the application fees, and the, all of the things you have to provide, you don't get it back. And there's 50 people looking for that apartment. You can spend lots and lots of money trying to find a place to live while they're shifting through your paperwork. Part of that is we don't have the supply coming on the market of kind of market entry home ownership, right? Those smaller homes, townhomes, that that piece is just not something that we're prioritizing in in what we build in this community. So you have a when you think about affordable home ownership, there's two two sides to the coin, right? You you need access to capital and you need a unit that you afford to spend what you can get from the bank will actually buy you something. And we just have that mismatch here, right? So there are people who who can't access alone in a value that would 
actually let them get into the market. That's the shameless plug. That's the beauty of Habitat's model is that we're the builder and the bank. So when folks enter our program, we know that there's going to be a unit available for them and we're, we know that we're going to be able to qualify them for enough of a mortgage to be able to buy that unit. So that's when we talk about all the different solutions that we need, when we think about that pathway to home ownership, having financing tools and supply coming on in a, in a coordinated fashion is really important. Part of what's holding our driving up the cost of rental units is the fact that there's nowhere for people to move out of those rental units into. So it, it just keeps more and more pressure in the rental market, driving up the number of people who are there, driving up the price. Supply and demand again. Yeah. I'm one of these folks that, that back in 2020 qualified for a 3% loan and got a rent. And I grew up in Nashville, born here, raised here. I'm 33, been paying taxes here for 33 years. My family has been here for multiple generations, and I've worked really hard. I've graduated from UNCA, I've got three degrees, about to finish my master's. And so when I found out I couldn't find a home, you know, it's kind of, it's discouraged me from buying. So I haven't even looked on the market. So I missed out on my loan that I was approved for, and I probably won't get it back. And I can't afford that. Even working the job that I work, I can't afford a home here. I mean, I try to help other people get into jobs where I know they won't be able to afford a home. I understand that. We work with folks every day to try to you know, get them into gainful employment, but it's hard when, I know me myself, I, I haven't even been able to find a home here. I grew up in the black neighborhood. I grew up in Klondike, and I feel like I deserve a spot here. I worked for AB Tech for seven years. During the, during the pandemic, I was the administrator for telecommunications over uh, continuing education and uh, over our distance learning classrooms. And just to say that I can't even own a home here, and I help train our law enforcement officers, help set up those classes, Everyone, the way that we continued running is, is us, and we can't own homes here, but we help other people own homes, and we support them. It makes me incredibly sad to hear that, but I want to I speak for my community. We have a bunch of realtors in town here who work really hard, and the number of times I've worked with a client who we were hitting the wall, but we found it, right? So part of it is getting somebody whose eyes are on the prize from the very beginning, working with you, making sure we know what your niche is, we know. You know what, I'm gonna say we, you can do it. We're gonna find a way, okay? And there's also the banks are not the only people you can get money from. They're really hamstrung with how they can lend money. But there's some really good, hardworking mortgage lenders in this town who some of them have 400 products they can choose from. I heard about one today, it's called a bank statement loan, right? And they look at your bank statements and they say, this person has cash flow, let's help them find something. So there are team members on our side who can help. When I was on council, we were 10,000 housing units down a year, and now you're saying we're five? 20. 20. Oh! <laughs> All right, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to add a couple of things to that. So first of all, Self-Help Credit Union has a new product where they provide, I can't remember if it's 103 or 105 percent of the purchase price, so they're working on that. So there are new innovative solutions out there. But that is another challenge that we're seeing too. People are coming to us and we just sold our first home last year and our buyer worked for 10 years towards home ownership. So the kind of perseverance and courage and dedication that it takes to work at that for 10 years. And she 
she lived in public housing her whole life. Her parents lived in public housing, so that is a lot to overcome. But there are options out there. And the other thing I want to add is that we are also seeing a lot of self-employed individuals, and that's another challenge because banks are already stringent in their qualifications for mortgages to employees, but then you add self-employment to the mix and it's even harder to get a loan. And so that's people are that, coming to us. That bank statement loan is for self-employed people. Okay. Okay. So there are some mortgage products out there that are being developed because of this issue. Yeah, yeah. so we're just seeing that it really takes people years to get to home ownership. We have two questions here, Colin. Thank you all for being here and being part of the presentation. I, if you don't know, Bunker County is doing the Bunker County 2043 plan where they're trying to figure out where we should be in 2043, essentially. So if you don't know about that, do that. Fill out the survey and be involved with that if you can. And one of the things that I noticed in that plan was that you can actually rank what you would prefer as far as the way how the county is going to develop and how things are going to change. And one of those things is should the county incentivize things like density instead of sprawl, in my mind. That's the way the scale works. And so when we're thinking about climate concerns and we're thinking about the way that we're going to be having more people, are there things that we can do other than vote for that to incentivize things like density, where it's expensive to build up, and I recognize that, and at the same time it's a better land use to do that, in my mind. So I'm just curious, from y'all's perspective, what that looks like. I'd love to respond to that. You know what our biggest problems are? And you know, it's based in racism. If you looked at the 1920 Asheville plan, it brought in single family residential areas. You know why? Because most people of color didn't live in single family homes. It says it right in the 1920s Asheville plan. To me, the best thing we can do is quit. NIMBYs are what's driving us all crazy. We all love our land. We don't want somebody right next to me. I would like to see us go to form-based codes that allow people to use their homes if they want to have apartments in it. Like Monford, why does that have to be a single family home? You know, there's five bedrooms. Why can't that be, you know, multifamily home? Why, let's just get away from this designation of, you know, from resident, like let's just make residential residential or form-based codes that says, let's make this community nice. Let's don't, we're not gonna say you can't have a store or a grocery store or a cafe in this neighborhood. Everybody wants to walk to the grocery store. Everybody wants to walk to the pub or the cafe, but our zoning disallows it. So I really want you to look at zoning and how you react to it, and don't think that changes in zoning are gonna ruin your life. The changes that were put into zoning in the 1920s have created this automobile community that we're all dependent on. I'm gonna add one more thing onto that since you said other than voting, and you, Robin mentioned NIMBYism. Folks who are against a new housing development tend to be the only people who show up for public meetings when those projects are being discussed. We need folks like all of you who understand the pressure on the housing market and why we need to increase the supply of housing in our community to show up so that our county commissioners, our city council members don't face this tough spot where they've just heard 30 minutes of people telling them why this project is not a good idea and then they have to vote to say yes but we're going to vote for it anyway that, that's it's really tough on our elected officials if the people who support affordable housing don't show up and make their voice heard along with the people who who might be opposing a particular development i started renting here in 2014 
And at that point, I got a single bedroom, really nice renovated apartment, 875. And it, my rent at that place, had I stayed, would be almost $1,500 now for a single bedroom. And I understand that it looks really nice in magazines, that everybody says, oh, it's a top 10. But the people who live here and work here, they live to work. They don't work to live. And there's something like it's anybody really talking about the fact like, congratulations, we're building 3,500 new apartment buildings inside, or apartment units inside of Buncombe County, but they're not affordable. So is anybody dealing with that part of it? Yes, there are people who are looking at that. A lot of the front and center for all of our elected officials in what we do with that. It goes back to, to a large degree to what Robin was saying about our city and county's relationship to our state government, right? So we don't, lots of places who are feeling the same kind of pressures that, that Asheville is have, are able to access tools to solve this problem that we, our state hasn't given us the ability to access. Things like inclusionary zoning, right, which would require that a certain amount of new development be targeted toward affordable housing. We can't do that here. Talk to the folks in Raleigh. We'd love to be able to make that happen. Other places who are facing the same kind of development pressure that we are here have that, right? We can only do, we can only create designated affordable housing within, within market rate development through incentives. So that's that means we, we've got to, I was late getting over here because I was coming from the city's affordable housing advisory committee meeting where we were talking about the tools that we use to incentivize developers to add affordable housing into their, into their new projects. And what we always run into in kind of that policy debate is what's the sweet spot between enough regulations to get the public good that we want to get out of development, things like affordable housing, without having those programs be so restrictive that people just go, Forget about it. I'm going to do this as a straight market rate deal and market it completely to high income households. And so it's a tricky policy balance as we're writing policy. And again, we don't have the we don't have the rent control, inclusionary zoning. We don't have the tools that some other places have that are experiencing the affordability challenges that we have here. What can we as a community do to actively change that aside from voting? I think this community, I think this council should get together and write something, write a white paper, write something that talk about all the people who you represent, all the organizations you represent, and let's figure out a, an avenue to send that to your state legislature. Talk to a city council person who's on your side, say, how can we give you our back? How can we make sure that you know we're on your back? That was the hardest thing on council, is not knowing who had your back when you stepped out of there. And like he said, you got 40 people showing up who hate it, but where's all the people who want it? You've got to know that, yes, I am representing the community. And this is a really good voice to do that. I have a brief question based on what you were saying. So I just want to be clear. In the city of Asheville, we don't have the power or the authority to impose on developers that X percent of your properties, of your units, have to be for affordable housing. We don't have the power to do that, but yet we have the authority to not allow Airbnbs here. How is That seems to be one and the same, that same kind of authority. How can we have one and not the other? It's beyond me to explain the logic of what our state government will allow and not allow. But we, yeah, we don't have the, we don't, we can't regulate. It gets down to, it gets down to property rights, right? We can't diminish somebody's property rights by saying you have to, you have to develop this many units as affordable housing. We can't restrict them there in the same way that we can't say, oh, you, you can't, 
use your property as an Airbnb as an income earning property, right? So we, it's, those two things are different. Now, we've been able to do some regulation around Airbnb in the city of Asheville. It's, as Robin mentioned, it's under threat at, in, at the state legislature right now. They ruled against a similar set of regulations in Wilmington. They're, so that's very tenuous and our ability to even regulate that, that part of the market. It comes down to business lobbying in many ways. People who are builders have a lot more voice than, say, homeowners sometimes, but even Airbnb and the homeowners are fighting the Airbnb thing. But this is so far a state recently that has been really pro-business. We want to be pro-business, but we forget that part of what business needs is people to be able to live and work and support their businesses. So we frame it in the conversation of this is pro-business, we need housing. We need your help to get housing in here. I have a question for you. I'm just thinking about how you don't have so much control over what you can regulate. Is there any way to come up with a happy, the right amount of maybe you can re regulate the amount of Airbnbs or the amount of developments that are allowed in Asheville? You have no control over that. It all goes to the state. I mean, we can try it and they can tell us no. I mean, we already do regulate Airbnbs to some degree. And that's another whole conversation about how that's working. And people are really trying because they see the power of it. What the city does in the meeting he was talking about, how you try to encourage it, we have the incentive power, right? So how do we get creative with incentives to say to a builder, hey, we've got this money sitting in the housing trust fund. We've got the ability to take away your fees for permits and things. We will do such and such if you'll give us this. But even those are just one or two years, right? We can't, two or th how many years do they have to keep affordability? It's longer and longer term. So okay. that's, that's one of the things that we've really worked on at the policy level locally is how long the length of affordability is that somebody commits to when they get an incentive. Typically that's coming in the form of tax relief for that developer. But again, that means we don't have revenue coming in from those properties in the same rate that we would, which limits what we can do with other kinds of city services, right? It's all a it's all a trade-off. The other way that we can control and have some influence at the local level on on development is through what Robin was talking about with zoning, right? We're working right now on at the city is working on a study of zoning changes that would allow greater density in some of our core city neighborhoods. This, if you follow land use policy, like I know all of you do, it's <laughs> the term is called missing middle, and it's this, this level of density between a high-rise apartment and a single-family home. Like all of your townhomes, duplex units, small kind of cottage neighborhood clusters, all of these sorts of land use patterns that if you drive around some of the older neighborhoods in Asheville, you'll see that there were a mix of housing types and densities in the urban, in our urban neighborhoods at the turn of the last century into the 1920s. And then we've, and then we've moved further and further away from that toward the single use model. So that's something that we're looking at. That's a, that's a way that we can control to some degree the patterns of growth in our community. And I'll add something that's less technical than those answers and maybe a little bit more inspiring. So us being a small organization, we are really community driven and com community owned, right? And so at the grassroots level, I always talk about community organizing as a really powerful tool, right? So we live in this political climate where there are certain things that we can't do, but organizing people and organizing human resources is a really powerful tool and so we're doing some of that right now in some of our focused neighborhoods we've actually created neighborhood-based funds in for example Burton Street and Stumptown 
And we've raised almost $100,000 between those two funds in about a year and a half. And that's just from people coming together and saying, we want to see solutions in our neighborhoods. So while we are fighting the legislature and all of these things that we cannot change, there are other avenues where we can organize and raise funds and come together and provide solutions for people who live here and have lived here. So offer the business perspective. I represent PLI. We have about 300 employees. We've been here for 30 years. We would love to be much larger. We're in a situation where we cannot recruit. We're struggling to retain as great new other businesses come to the community. We've had to raise our rates, so we're willing to raise our rates and pay our employees more. We also look to recruit from other communities to bring them here to fill our openings but they tell us they can't afford to live here. So I think the argument, perhaps the pro-business argument, is we can't grow. We are turning down work, and if other community employers are turning down work, our community is going to contract because we don't have enough affordable housing to recruit people to run our businesses and to grow. That's our concern. So there's a few good models around our communities of employers who are assisting employees with housing or treating housing as a benefit in some way. And that's a really, I think that's a model that many of you could take back to the companies that you work for. Biltmore has had a long-standing program both for a down payment assistance match savings program for their employees as well as a rental assistance program for their employees. I know I've been on a panel a number of times with, with those folks. It's managed through a great community organization called On Track Financial. Mission used to have a similar program. I know Asheville Independent Restaurant Group has been working on some very grassroots organizing around what uh, what restaurateurs can do with employees. Particularly, their focus has been around emergency rental assistance. So how do they cover an employee who might just need one month's rent to stay in a place where they are so that we don't they don't have the disruption in their workforce? So I think thinking about housing as an employee benefit, as a piece of how employers can get plugged in, all the way up to the model that Buncombe County Schools used of actually developing housing for their workforce. So they, there's, I forget now how many units there are near the Inca school that the county school district just built for, for, for teacher housing. So there's lots of ways to plug in into that into that model and then link that up with some of the incentive programs that we that, that exist at the city and county level for developing new housing units and those kinds of things to, to tie it all together. I just want to follow up on what you had said. We just completed a regional collaboration process with five counties. LA Sky Regional Council and the Chambers of Commerce in the region was led by the business community and Every business that we've talked to in local government as well, this is their number one priority. It's not having housing for workforce. So it's the trifecta of childcare, housing, and transportation. So this is something that a lot of people are working on. Everyone's kind of stymied and looking at all the options on the table and trying to get really creative. I don't know if anyone from the chamber is here, but they have two housing issues for their policy agenda. So if you're a member of the Ashland Buncombe Chamber, please reach out to them and Zach Wallace because they are collecting information and they are going to be talking about this with legislators. This is one of those intractable problems that is taking multi-pronged solutions. And I'm really grateful for you all to clarify some of that because I do strategic planning with groups. I'm big on root causes. 
and I know this one root cause is a hard one to get around, and that is really being consistently sending a message to our legislators, right? You gotta send them solutions. You gotta tell them what you want. You can't just say, we got this problem, because right. they'll come up with a solution that may not help the well, problem no, at all. So you gotta have an answer. You're, like that's she said, I yeah. I wanna know who can, you know when you get those petition things and they say, here, send this, say this. Yeah. I want that, and I think we all need that. We can modify it and customize it and all that, but it's like, what's the core message? What? And I heard you got to come from we're pro-business. Great, I'm happy to say that as long as the solution is pro-everybody. Allow our community to engage some tools and see what we can do to work. Allow us on a local level to approach the problem with solutions we see locally. Yeah, and if you want a real tangible thing to do, ashevilleareahabitat.org, our website has an, an advocacy page that has our policy priorities on it. You can sign up to, to receive advocacy alerts from us. Right now we're working on pushing our local elected officials around protections around source of income discrimination, right? So people who are using housing assistance as so a form of paying the rent. Web. See, sign up. We'll send you things when you, ways that you can engage when you need to engage. And I'll just say one more thing. We've talked a lot about inclusionary housing or inclusionary zoning, and Asheville has not been successful with that, but Chapel Hill has a similar program. So if you want to do a little bit more research, the Community Home Trust, which is a community land trust in Chapel Hill, is able to actually get 10% of those units that are developed set aside into their portfolio. I want to thank today's panelists and the Goodwill Industries Business Advisory Council for allowing me to record and podcast from their February meeting. The Asheville band The Resonant Rogues is allowing me to use their Maker song as the theme music of The Overlook. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday. Please follow the show for free on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.